Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. And we have a special guest on today, author of the brand new book, Built to Lose, that is entirely focused on the phenomenon in the NBA regarding tanking and what the results are from that specific process. We have Jake Fisher. Jake, how are you doing this morning, my friend? I'm doing well, guys. How are you? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I, I could technically say afternoon since we're recording this right at noontime um, on, on Monday, June 14th, but um, you, you, you reached out regarding potentially coming on our podcast, and I was thrilled when you said it because I already had your book on a reading list. Um, order that puppy right away to come in. And I got through it yesterday and in one day over the weekend. I know you were a little surprised when I told you that off air, but it was that thrilling of a read for me, I guess, mainly because when, when we're talking about when the book started, and I'll get into some of the questions I have for you, but really the, the book sets off in the 2013 draft. And that was such an interesting draft to be able to, to kind of watch and be a part of from the scouting landscape. It was so many different interesting subplots. Um, but that's also really a time where I came into scouting and, and wanting to kind of look at that whole aspect of, of, of drafting players and player development. I, I technically started following a lot of that about 2011. I, I say that I've tried to tried my hand at doing this for about 10 years now. So that's really like right in the wheelhouse of when mm -hmm. I got started. So maybe that's why it interests me. Um, and, and definitely piques my interest. But um, without further ado, man, you ready to, to dive in for, for some of the questions that I have for you? I'm curious to get some of your takes on these. Yeah, I'm doing, I will. I just want to say before we get into it, I mean, my, my big selling pitch on the book, I, I've been told to, to say at the top, you know, the stuff I think that, that made you so enthralled with it is I talked to over 300 people for this book, from players, agents, coaches, executives, to really find out, you know, new information and, and details about how the league operates at large and behind the scenes and you know all the stories we're about to talk about is a testament to that and we, we can go for a long time here but it's still it's still going to leave a lot of <laughs> that people can read about so that's my spiel we 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 can i like, like i said i have quite the list of questions here i don't want to take up all day of your time but i definitely want to get through some of these and it's going to lead to some fun discussion so um, I just want to jump in right away. So your book, like I said, it actually starts in chapter one with the 2013 draft, which isn't directly this. This isn't directly related to the overall topic of the book. But since you were around, I, I want to start with a fun question before we start getting into the hard hitting stuff that that big J journalism, as our friend Colin Cowherd calls it. But how the hell did the Cleveland Cavaliers draft Anthony Bennett over Victor Oladipo? Like, I, I just got to start with a fun question right there, Jake. I want your thoughts on that one. Well, I think uh, I started the book at the 2013 drafts kind of as a way to be a vehicle to, to explain the background that all the teams were going to talk about, um, where they came from. And, and honestly, when a team comes on the clock at, at number one or number 30 or whatever, like the context of the, the last five years and the contract status of the executives at play and the general timeline of that franchise, like there's so much involved behind that pick. And with Cleveland at number one in 2013, overall, I mean, that class wasn't considered to be a good class. It was considered to be a bad class. And, and even, and even more so 
the reason I think this book even exists is the 2014 class was the most hyped class since 2003 that produced LeBron, Wade, and Bosch, right? So it prevented it presented a lot of um, uncertainty at the top, and when there isn't a clear-cut number one, it allows you know, even the best and shrewdest NBA executives to kind of double-guess and, and double-think their own uh, thoughts and opinions, honestly. And when you, when you throw in the fact that Chris Grant, who was the GM of, of Cleveland at the time, only had one year left on his contract, and they had all this you know, pressure from Dan Gilbert, that whole Comic Sans letter, to not only make the playoffs but to win a championship before LeBron in Miami, like that, that presented the fact that I mean, the Cavs couldn't take their own Noel number one, and they were probably trying to swing for the highest upside. I really do think so. And, you know, Cavs officials to this day kind of maintain that they were right and that picking Anthony Bennett predicted kind of where the league was going and malleable wings and tweeners are now something that you want to covet, not, you know, get labeled with a red herring. But they just picked the wrong one in Anthony Bennett. That, that's kind of the uh, the calculus that's been communicated to me. The, the most fascinating part about Anthony Betty, you, you use the word correctly. It, it, it was tweener. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, he, he might have potentially been a tweener in, in a bad way, particularly defensively. At least that's my opinion. Um, certainly offensively, he brought a lot of different skills to the table. But yeah, that was such a fascinating pick. Right at the top, you get the classic Bill Simmons, you know, firing off on 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 air like, holy cow, what the hell's going on with this draft? But um, the the 2013 draft in in general, um, and, and I want to ask you a question, Jake, about what tanking specifically is in terms of at its core, and, mm-hmm. and you'll see what I mean in a second. But I think the 2013 draft is actually a, a fascinating counter argument. At least that's how I would phrase it: the tanking in and of itself. And my reason why I say that. Because you have guys like C.J. McCollum, Stephen Adams, Giannis, Dennis Schroeder, Tim Hardaway, and Rudy Gobert all going 10 or below. And obviously, some of those names are better than others. We we have legitimate star and superstar names in that list, but you also have very valuable role players there as well. Um, but the talent was there later in the first round of that draft. So is is the notion of tanking or positioning yourself higher in the first round based solely on all-star probability or do you think maybe there's also a lack of trust by team scouting departments to find a quality impact player later in the first round is it more of a of a distrust or is it you think it's really that hard analytically driven the idea of tanking i think it came into the mainstream and became really popular in the last decade because of the analytical minded executives coming to power i mean it wasn't just sam hinkey in Philadelphia. It was also Rob Hennigan in Orlando. Remember, he traded Dwight Howard away to the Lakers a whole year before Hinky even was hired in Philadelphia. And Ryan McDonough comes into Phoenix from Boston and after the Suns signed and trade Steve Nash away. Sure, that, that 13-14 season, they, they ultimately almost made the playoffs, but they, they traded for, they got three first-round picks in that 2014 class. It, it was a combination of those analytical-minded guys um, realizing that throughout the NBA's history, champions are typically comprised of multiple all-stars, and the most direct path to getting them is through the draft. And you look at who was running the league at the time, too, it was the Miami Heat. And I mentioned at the top how the 14 class was considered to be the best class since 2003. Miami drafted Dwayne Wade. They won a championship around him already. And then having him in place, it allowed them to bring other top five picks from that class in LeBron and Chris Bosh 
to Miami and continue to win more championships. So that strategy was as much um, a reflection of the analytical minded guys coming to power as much as it was them also saying, we got to wait out Miami anyway. We might as well get the, ne- the next generation of those guys in 2014. And, you know, we'll see Joel Embiid down the road lead a perennial title contender. And, you know, Julius Randle is now an MVP candidate. And, you know, the Suns, they didn't think it'd be Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton all those years later, but they draft those two guys. And sure enough, Chris Paul wants to come join Phoenix. And now they're in the Western Conference Finals. Boston moves on from KG and Paul Pierce the same night that Hinkie traded Drew Holiday to New Orleans. And, you know, the Celtics, aside from what's happened in the last couple of months, you know, they made three out of four uh, – they made three out of five Eastern Conference Finals with that Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown crew that, you know, they built that all after rebuilding from the big peer, the, the big three era of Paul Pierce. So I think that the, the strategy clearly had its dividends, and I don't think it's going away anytime soon as we saw Detroit and OKC and Orlando and Houston all play the lottery this year, which is obviously coming up next week. Because ironically enough, this 2021 class, it's considered to be the best class since 2014. Yep. And, and we're definitely going to to hit on 2021, 2020, more of like the modern times of, of tanking, definitely later in the interview here. Um, as, as we move past that initial opening, we go a little further into the book. Um, I know you're a Northeast guy, Jake. You, you have you have ties to, to the Philadelphia area with, with all of your conversations with Hinky and related to the 76ers in the process. You have obviously ties to, to like the Boston area and the Celtics and everything that Danny Ainge was doing that as well. So we'll, we'll bounce around a few markets here. But obviously, we want to talk about the Philadelphia 76ers. That's my hometown team. Um, I generally try to talk about them on the podcast whenever I can. Um, trust the process is obviously at the forefront of the story. Um, I have to ask you, though, the Bynum trade, man. So yeah. n- not only did it bring him in, it was also the deal responsible for jettisoning Andre Iguodala out from the 76ers as well. And I understand where the team was going, trade assets to bring in a potential superstar. Would you personally have made that trade for Bynum, even knowing some of the medical concerns while he was with the Lakers? Or would you have found a different way to cash in on any assets from a separate Iguodala deal if the conclusion w- was come to that you had to move on from a hero in Philly like him? I think the trade was really defensible at the time and not even defensible, I think it was. You know, I think it was a really good move. And I think to the to this mm-hmm. day, the logic still checks out. I mean, you turned Andre Iguodala, who was you know a borderline all-star, a, a complimentary piece. Like, obviously, he really found his – his true niche in Golden State being, you know, a, a real secondary option um, and, and a defender primarily. I think he was uh, underqualified in, in the number one role that he was cast for in Philadelphia. That wasn't his fault. It just is what it is. Um, and, you know, I, I think when you flash forward, I mean, I have, rep- I have reporting in my book, the Sixers medical team, you know, when they uh, evaluated his knees, before as that trade was getting completed there there were a lot of doctors who thought that he still had a lot of room i mean he got cleared by three out of four doctors that they showed his medical records to yep and when Bynum eventually does go over to germany that fall to get the the procedure that kobe bryant had done previously which obviously kind of boosted kobe in the second half of his career but then again as, as we cover in the book and spin it forward even further Kobe ended up having 
a bunch of knee issues and lower body stuff at, in the final years of his career as well. When Bynum came back from that surgery, the Philadelphia medical staff saw something bad. They did not see uh, a turn for the better. A, a team source told me for the book that his knee looked like slush and there was just nothing left. And I don't know definitively if that overseas surgery was truly the nail in the coffin for Bynum in his career, but it's certainly something that Sixers people truly pinpoint as, you know, the thing that derailed his tenure in Philadelphia. But they also made that trade knowing that he was on an expiring contract. And if it didn't work out, they could just wipe their hands clean and move forward with a relatively clean cap sheet. And it did set the stage for Sam Hankey to continue to do more maneuvering to use that cap uh, space to their advantage and to collect future assets in return. Yeah, it really was kind of like the the the, the domino effect for kind of what started the, the whole trust the process thing. And I think that trade stands out to me. I think it's probably one of the more fascinating trades that's happened from like 2010s all the way through here where we are now, the early 2020s. And I, I, I literally... That, that was at the beginning of when I kind of started to be a 76ers fan. I was actually more or less a, a fan of those Memphis Grizzlies grit and grind teams at mm-hmm. the time. But that was around when I tried to truly embrace my hometown 76ers. I have an Andrew Bynum, like an off-color 76ers shirt. And I will literally still wear that to this day just because I just think it's a fascinating piece of history. And it's a reminder to, to me of how far the 76ers have come in, in the last or around like a decade now. So that, that, that was always a fascinating move to me. And I, I agree with you, man. I think that the trade is, was absolutely the thing to do at that time, kind of regardless of the situation, Bynum could have absolutely been one of the most dominant big men in the league. And you have to take swings on those kind of players when, when those parts are, are, are available. Um, and the other part related to the 76ers to focus on from an operation standpoint, not necessarily the drafting and signing of players, was the hiring of Brett Brown, who I supported as the head coach for many years, as did the, the good old rights to Ricky Sanchez crew. You got the Spike and Mike quotes in there in, in your book too. I love that, absolutely love it. Um, until it was finally uh, the time to move on from him. Um, but so many talented candidates were on the table who have gone on to success as well, particularly, I guess, the one that would stand out the most um, to, to, to like the casual fan kind of observing who, who's been a successful head coach from those guys you mentioned in your book was Quinn Snyder of the Utah Jazz, uh, which the Jazz are, they're living their best lives in the playoffs right now. Um, was there another candidate who had a legitimate chance in the final hours to nab that job from from Brett when Sam Hinkie was kind of going around traveling, meeting different candidates? Or do you think that Hinkie just he did his due diligence to interview other guys, but he had his mind virtually made up with, with, with Brett when it was time to hire a head coach? I don't think he had his mind set. I think, um, you know. I, I did some reporting today for Bleacher Report on all the latest head coaching rumors that I'm hearing around the league. And look at the Portland situation. Everyone has been saying Chauncey Billups for, you know, Terry Stotts' replacement for weeks now. And it seems like this public, uh, you know, Neil Olshay came out and said that they're going to interview 20 to 25 candidates. That seems kind of like a show. And <laughs> I, I don't think that was the case in Philadelphia. And I don't think it's the case in Boston right now. I think Boston currently is trying to really fi- do a wide spanning search. And, and, and I mean, there's pressure for the Celtics to nail this higher. I think they truly are looking to, to span this thing out and, uh, and give it an earnest, you know, search here. I think from 
you know, a lot of the reporting in the book and from conversations I've had with other people and even Sam himself over the year. I mean, I, I didn't get to talk to Sam on the record for the book, but I talked to him as I wrote in, in the uh, intro and in the epilogue. I, I do have a bit of a relationship with him over the years. And I think, you know, his MO is always about compiling as much info and doing as much research as possible to, in order to make the most informed decision that one can. And I think that's what his job was at that time. I think interviewing, you know, even maybe 30 people, he did, he told me the, um, a couple of weeks ago, I actually asked him um, how many people uh, he probably would interview for a job. And he said 30. Um, so, I mean, I think that just goes to show just the top of just the type of, uh, you know, research gathering mind he has. And I think Brett was someone he always really did want to meet with. Um, but, and he obviously made perfect sense for other details that we can talk about, but I do think that it was a pretty earnest and, and general interview process. Yeah. Why, why don't we just jump into that a little bit before I move on to, to my next question, which by the way, I can tell that you've done so many interviews as you kind of said to me off the air, but you, you made a comment in there about the Celtics and literally like a perfect pivot into what my next question will be. But why don't we stay with Brett Brown a little bit? What, what, why do you think that he was ultimately the best fit for the job at the time? And they were trying to find someone who could be a partner and a builder and a teacher and a nurturer, almost like a kindergarten teacher crossed with an NBA coach. And <laughs> Brett really was that guy. And I think there's this one great story in the book to kind of show just his overall teaching mindset. Like back in San Antonio, Bell Demps was the GM who made the New Orleans trade with, with Sam Hankey for Drew Holiday. But before Dell was in San Antonio, was in New Orleans, he was in San Antonio and the Spurs had this big lap pool that because Tim, Tim Duncan liked to swim for cardio and Del Demps was in there one day splashing around doggy paddling and Brett Brown walked in on him laughing like hey man like you don't know how to swim and I was like yes I do and Brett said no no like come back tomorrow at 6 a.m and I'm going to teach you how to swim so every day for weeks like him and this other you know middle-aged guy got in the pool and their spurs adidas gear and like he taught him how to swim even though Greg Popovich and Duncan and R.C. Buford and all these guys were coming and laughing at them Brett was in there in the water helping a coworker learn how to swim every single day at 6 a.m. So like that just the, that's just a testament to the kind of guy that he is. That that swimming story in the book that that if there weren't already enough reasons for for my audience to certainly go out and buy your book, Jake, when I read that swimming story in the book, I was I was sitting there literally laughing out loud like that that, that was such a great anecdote to have. Um, in a book like that, yeah, as as you mentioned, that that does show the type of character that Brett Brown had with that team, his his undying will to to make sure that he always left an impact, whether it was a player or a coach or somebody he knew, he always wanted to make an impact in in somebody's life. Even going back to those early days when they first had Nerlens Noel, and he was always taking the time to work with Noel, however many hours he needed to before every single game or after a practice, and and work on his shooting with him or just a skill in general. He did that not just with Noel, but with all the players that he was able to coach during that time. And and there were quite a few players, and I'll definitely have a question related to that um, as we keep going in the interview here. But yeah, just the 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 time and the effort that that Coach Brett put in with with 76ers over the years it, I can't thank him enough for it honestly as as a Sixers fan it's what you want to head coach um but uh just as a quick aside related to coaches hired in that period um you alluded to this the the news that Brad Stevens is the one to replace Danny Ainge in the Celtics front office we've had that come out over the last week I'm just curious 
from someone who's been around that situation and, and you've talked to people around the situation, did that recent move shock you at all in terms of where Brad is now, or do you think he's going to succeed in that role? Um, it wasn't surprising that Danny Ainge resigned, um, but it definitely took many, myself and a lot of people around the league by surprise that, that Brad did that transition. I mean, in hindsight, it sounds like from talking to people around that situation that, um, it's something that Brad was leading towards for a while, but I ultimately think the fact he signed a five-year contract extension and it's very lucrative and ownership still likes him, even though maybe everyone kind of agreed that Brad might not be the best person to coach that team anymore. They're going to bring him on to operate as kind of the, the figurehead and the, the patriarch, if you will. And Mike Zarin's going to get more and more responsibility to operate beneath him, but Brad will be kind of the guy making the big picture decisions. So um, I think he'll be okay with it. I think he's a really smart, you know, emotionally intelligent guy too. And I think that's a skill set that will be really important to kind of, you know, be more of a fabric piece and, and hold that franchise together as opposed to coming up with a game plan and rotations and schemes and all that type of stuff. Yeah. I'll be incredibly curious to see who ultimately becomes the next coach of the Celtics. Cause I really think it's going to be a reflection of, of, what Brad sees for this team moving forward. And I think that he is a good person to to choose a successor because he's been around those guys now, the, those two main stars they have, Tatum and Brown, for enough years now to the point where I think he knows the type of coach that he needs to bring in to get the most out of them. And I'll just, I'll be really curious to see who that person is. Um, but kind of like speaking of coaches that were hired during that time that we're talking about here, the last one that I really wanted to hit on before we move on, um, you touched on the Kings in your book as well. And I have to ask you, you alluded to um, a, a possible explanation or two in your writing, but just to, to kind of have the discussion on the podcast, your personal opinion, do you have any other insight to share as to why Mike Malone was fired from the Kings at that time? Cause yeah, there, there are a few things that have been thrown around over the years regarding an explanation, but that one always, threw me for a loop and I could never really bring myself to understand why. Um, I think from all the reporting I've done and it's, it's pretty laid out in the book, Vivek Ranadive is an owner who really likes to, to you know, medals, not probably the right word, but likes to have a lot of say and a lot of agency in his basketball operations. And we've seen time and time again that I don't know. I don't, I don't think that really is the best way to work. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the most successful organizations, the owner has a lot of say and, and has ultimate final say. But I think that the best situations are where owners fully empower their basketball operations people to do so. And I think from the, from the jump, Vivek made a mistake in hiring Michael Malone before he hired Pete D'Alessandro. And when he did hire Michael Malone, it was under the pretext that that coaching staff would have two years to get that team into the postseason. But you know, he, he brings in Pete D'Alessandro, and from there there's already talks of, oh, you know, this is Pete's first opportunity to run a team. Like, does he want to lead a team with a head coach that he didn't hire? And that timeline of two years got really altered when that very December in 2013, they immediately go and make that Rudy Gay trade, and it's a win-now move, and there's now a direction – being communicated from Pete to Michael Malone that we need to make the playoffs. And you spin that forward, they don't make the playoffs that season. Yep. I think there was more pressure from Vivek onto Pete D'Alessandro 
to get that team into the postseason. And I, I think a, a lot of times what I hear a lot around the league, I mean, a lot of these decisions, at the end of the day, there's just executives and coaches who are trying to save their jobs. And there are agents who are trying to get their player in, in the best position to make money. And like everyone has their own competing agenda. When those agendas don't line up, um, everyone has their own agenda. Not everyone has their own competing agenda. But so when, when those agendas don't line up and they are competing, it's when franchises, you know, spin out and, and don't move forward. And I think that's ultimately the overall theme with the Kings. They, they always stepped on, on each other's toes. They would take one step forward and two steps back. They would hire one person to have some type of authority and then hire another person uh, beneath them. Who then you know got a little more agency and ultimately pushed that that person out. I mean, from hiring Michael Malone first to then Pete Alessandro, then they hire Vlade Divac. Then you know all these years forward, they they bring George Carl in uh, to lunch. I have this great detail in the book where at 2014 Summer League, the Michael Malone's coaching staff was out to lunch at this restaurant in Vegas called La Pescheria, and as they're walking out. The summer before Michael Michael Malone even got fired, Vivek was coming in to have lunch with George Carl. Like that type of stuff is just, you know, it's impossible to have an organization be successful when you keep pulling moves like that. And this this is a big reason why I thought your book was such a fascinating read from start to finish, Jake. Because when when you when you take the title right, built to lose, we're obviously talking about tanking and the types of decisions these these teams are making during drafts. You don't think about all of those different subplots that help build the story as to what it is now for for the modern day. Like I wasn't expecting to to read any any of that stuff to be honest, like about um the whole Mike Malone situation with the Kings or some of the anecdotes you have about the Phoenix Suns and all of the decisions they made that led to that surprise 48 and 34 season. Like these are some things that I want my audience to pay attention to should they go out and, and read your book, because these are such fascinating subplots that give context to multiple different stories that come from that time period in the NBA. But um, I, I want to circle back around to the 76ers now, obviously when discussing tanking, there's one aspect I don't think some people expound upon too often. And I said I was going to come back to all of the players that marched through the 76ers during that, that era with Hinky. Um, it's how Hinky, in a way, created jobs for individuals who may not have gotten the same opportunity to play and develop elsewhere into what they are now or, or were a few years ago. Guys like Robert Covington, obviously. Dwayne Dedman, even though he wasn't with the 76ers for long, he got that, that other opportunity in, in Orlando to really showcase his talent. TJ McConnell is another guy who, who's gotten a pretty pretty reasonable contract given what he brings to the table with the Indiana Pacers now. But sure, there were a lot of players in and out of there as marked by the, the, the famous rights to Ricky Sanchez pro process roster shirts. I wish I had one of those. I need to still get myself one of those, but... Um, that kind of a showcase was like a it was like a one off, and it really hasn't been repeated. But to me, that was definitely a positive part of the process. Have you ever sat back and thought about something like that, and in, in, in like in that context in relation to tanking? Yeah, I think one thing that gets overlooked about Sam Hinkie's strategy in particular, and I, and I think the book, I mean, it covers primarily Philly, Boston, the Lakers. Orlando, Phoenix, and Sacramento. There's some Cleveland and Milwaukee, Minnesota mixed in, but those six teams are primarily um, the, the main teams we cover. And I think they're all different versions of the same abstract of, of trying to build through the draft and losing for the sake of ultimately winning in the long run. 
Billy's in there is the most brazen example, right, of doing moves unapologetically to try to maximize your roster spots to, um, you know, generate more assets for your draft capital in the future and also potentially develop guys into real contributing pieces while they don't make a lot of money. And I think one aspect of Philly and Hinky's strategy, bringing in all those guys on 10-day contracts and multi-year non-guaranteed deals, it provided a lot of opportunities for players to, to make a career for themselves. I mean, forget about the Robert Covingtons and the TJ McConnells, players like Jeremy Grant and yep. Tim Frazier and, you know, Christian Wood and all these other players who, you know, they got their first shot on a training camp roster or at an actual team that, you know, makes them that much more attractive for another team to hire them. Or they play well in a vacuum of minutes like Dwayne Dedman and he ends up getting poached by Orlando and bounces around the league and he's made, you know, upwards of $50 million, I think, by the end of his yep. career. Like those are opportunities that Sam Hinkie gave a lot of people that I don't think he gets a lot of credit for. It, it's it's funny you mentioned Tim Frazier. I hadn't even remembered that story, um, but when it came up in your book, I was like, holy hell, I didn't even remember that they, they had that workout session between him. It was like the one-on-one scrimmage between him and Dante Exum and Tim Frazier. Shout, shout out to, to Penn State. He kind of gave Dante Exum the, the business. So it's just the, these little things, again, that come up in your book. These are just fascinating stories to be able to read about, but yeah, um, kind of... I, I reported it first, man. That's <laughs> no, but that that that's that's a big get because Dante Exum was such a a highly coveted draft prospect at that time. He ended up going top five, but um, I, yeah, I didn't even remember that that Philly did have that much legitimate interest in him at the time. It's just not something you you always think about, and that comes to memory. But um, the, like I said, that was another really interesting antidote to get into. But uh, mo- moving more into into Sam Hinkie. I've always had this thought about Hinky, and, and I would love to hear your response to the to this, Jake, um, that if he wasn't able to draft the best overall player available on his board, that he would move into taking the next best trade asset by consensus around the league, as opposed to necessarily taking the next best available player to envision long-term on the 76ers. That's kind of been my whole theory behind the drafting of Jaleel Okafor over Kristaps Porzingis. I think that the buzz around Jaleel Okafor at that time was you had so many big media people saying that he should have even went possibly number two to the Lakers, but ended up going number three in, in, in Philadelphia. So I want to ask you about that question. How would you describe Hinky's approach to drafting at the top of the lottery during that time? And do you think there's any merit to, to my theory or are you ready to shoot me down, my friend? I definitely think he wanted to make big swings. And you know, I, I was talk. I did a podcast last week um, with BJ Armstrong, the player agent who used to obviously play with the Bulls during Michael Jordan's era. Mm-hmm. BJ's been around the league as a as an executive, an agent, whatever for you know, decades. And he was saying you know, the draft used to be where you, where teams would say, "I need to get a guy who can help me right now." And I think for teams, you know, building through the draft as a primary tool to turn themselves into a contender. You know, they're definitely picking for upside and trying to project guys like Donovan Mitchell, who I mean, he obviously falls to 13, but like someone who has untapped potential that can you know emerge later on far more far more um, ahead of where players who are better than them at that current moment are. Like that's why Dante Exum was considered to be 
a tantalizing prospect. He was six foot six. He could guard multiple positions. He was athletic and young and could kind of score. But like, if, if he could only get a jumper, like maybe he could be, you know, X, Y, and Z. And clearly that's why it's perilous. Right. And that's why I think the draft and tanking is so fascinating too. It's that ultimately this is all a game of chance at the end of the day with a lottery too. And then it's about a lot of luck and other, you know, unforeseen variables that come into play in the draft where, you know, a guy might get injured. I and mean, that's the only reason why Joel Embiid was even available to Philly at all at number three. Like, the Cavs would have taken him number one that year. He just broke his foot in that workout. Cleveland officials to this day maintain that Joel Embiid broke his foot during his actual workout for the Cavs where he was hitting 14 straight threes from the corner and talking track and coaches and, and winning them over. It was the best workout that those Cavs officials had ever seen. But they just couldn't take him because he broke his foot. And that, that you know, misfortune ended up being Philly's game. But even Philly, you know, the fact that Embiid ended up missing his first two years due to re-breaking that foot a couple days before the draft, that's a, that played a big role in why they drafted Jaleel Okafor. So I think, you know, it's a game of trying to maximize um, potential as much as it is actual talent. And it's a game of forecasting as much as it is just evaluating what's in front of you. And you're like a psychic right now, literally segueing into some of my next questions uh, because you you hit on the the Cavs and, and Joel Embiid and where we're right in the thick of that 2014 2015 the, the, those two year draft periods because um, obviously the story in 2014 was not just about Philly but it was about Cleveland and Milwaukee obviously sitting at the top of the draft at slots one and two respectively taking Andrew Wiggins and Jabari Parker. So with Wiggins going first to Cleveland and then basically being flipped as soon as he could be for Kevin Love with LeBron James in the fold and, and that whole circus that happened in that offseason, do you think at all that Cleveland made Wiggins the pick because he was the guy they knew Minnesota wanted in a deal or even if not that deep, um, the guy with the better trade path because he didn't have the medical red flags like Embiid? I absolutely think that. I'm pretty sure I wrote that in the book. I know that um, you know, the Cavs were definitely having conversations with the Timberwolves, all leading. I mean, up up the year before in 2013, Cleveland was trying to trade that number one pick that they that they took Anthony Bennett with. They were absolutely trying to trade down or trade him for or trade that pick for um, an established player. Yep, they had to be on the table, but it, it was something that they ultimately didn't get ownership approval for. Um, in 2014, it was the opposite. That they, they had a lot of people interested in, in that number one pick. And they knew from feeling those trade calls that Flip Saunders, I mean, Kevin, I start off the chapter in the book about that, that, that transitions from that 13, 14 season to the 2014 draft season, the draft cycle with the detail of Kevin Love requesting a trade from Minnesota, because that's kind of what this is all about, right? Like not only is it about drafting these guys, but then the clock also immediately starts ticking on keeping them. And, you know, there's, these talks are happening right now in Dallas with Luka Doncic and New Orleans with Zion Williamson and, and Minnesota with Carl Anthony Towns. Like, you can't just draft the guy. It's, then, you know, the pressure's on on your front office and your coaching staff to, to keep growing a, a winning team around them. So, absolutely. When, when the Cavs had word that LeBron might have been interested in rejoining that team and free agency a couple, you know, days after the draft is over and Kevin Love's requesting a trade and they seem to have a relationship from team USA and other Nike responsibilities. Like, hell yeah. They were talking to Minnesota. <laughs> number one. It's just a shame, man, that, that everything happened at that time with, with 
Joel Embiid's foot. And, and if he would have went to Cleveland and LeBron would have come back, you would have had Kyrie, LeBron, and Embiid potentially in the fold together. That would have, oh my God. Like that, that, that would that, that would have been one of the most interesting teams I think ever, ever put together on the fly like that in, 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 in one season. Obviously Kyrie was already there, but you, you get LeBron in the mix with, with two generational young talents like that. Man, that 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 would have been something. And Lord only knows what that would have meant for for the future, even past um, when when LeBron ultimately left Cleveland to to go to the Lakers. Maybe he would have never went to the Lakers. Who who the hell knows? But um, stay, kind of staying in that realm, like I said. So now now I want to move into 2015 because we we knew the Sixers and head coach Brett Brown would be in, enthralled by Ben Simmons for a number of reasons. Sitting at the top of that draft, winning the lottery. Um, obviously both of their ties to Australia, but there have been supporters like Kevin O'Connor over the years who argue that Brandon Ingram should have potentially been the first overall pick over Simmons. Um, do you know of any major debate in Philly's front office over those two players during that 2015 draft period? Do you think there was ever a chance Ingram could have been the pick over Simmons? Or do you think Simmons was definitely the, the, the guy through and through? Um, I mean, I think there were definitely people under Sam Hankey before he resigned who absolutely valued ben, uh, uh, Brandon Ingram over Ben Simmons. I do. Um, I'm not sure if he was still there, if they would have made that decision. But you know, after Sam gets ousted and after Brian Colangelo takes over, I mean, I do remember um, from those conversations back then, and just it's kind of been – indoctrinated into like league lore that the Sixers were, weren't going to take Ben until they knew he wanted to go there. I mean, there was definitely some, I don't know how you want to call it, but some, some thought, if you will, being put into him being a clutch guy and knowing that you know the way Rich Paul operates, he, he likes to, you know, really use his players agency and power to their advantage and, and to pull some strings if they can within the franchise. I mean, that's, that's within their, you know, uh, prerogative if that's how they want to operate, but that's yep. something that a lot of front offices don't necessarily want to deal with, right? So until they got Ben to come in and work out, which was only a couple days or weeks before the draft, if I remember correctly, he was not the bona fide number one surefire guy. Once they did bring him in there, I mean, I do remember talking to people who were in those workouts. I mean, everyone said that the difference between Ingram and Simmons was stunning. And one of them was a clear generational athlete and someone who was projectable as at least someone who was going to be a menace in transition, a defensive freak. Um, Ingram was skin and bones, and uh, there was a lot of skepticism about him too. So I think up close and personal, once they got Ben in, into their facility, they really it really was a no-brainer, and, and, and they were never really considering Brandon after that. Absolutely. Definitely an, an interesting point to take away. So I want to, I want to move into the modern day here. I want to, I want to definitely ask these two questions and then we can wrap up the pod, Jake. There's obviously stories that happen be, between 2015 and what I would consider the last two years. So if my audience wants yeah. to hear more about that, they got to buy your book. And I'm telling everybody that I know to, to buy your book because it was one of the best things I've read over the last few years. But I, I want to come into the modern day here. There's really two questions that I have for you regarding the, the past like two or three years of drafting. Um, the first obviously relates to, to the lottery reform where odds for teams to land a top three pick were more flattened, which has led to some crazy jumps, including the Pelicans ultimately getting Zion Williamson with the first overall pick. But as it relates to 2021 and conversations we kind of had before 
uh, we, we came on the pod and, uh, and Twitter DMs. Do you think there was arguably more blatant tanking this year as opposed to previous years during the Hinky regime, for example? The thought to, to change the lottery odds was to make it less appealing for teams to, to bottom out. But in your opinion, as I take it, the changes have potentially ma- made it worse. Is that kind of where we're sitting today? I think so. I mean, you mentioned New Orleans jumping up for Zion. I mean, the 2019 draft was the first year that the lottery reform was exacted. They passed it in 2017 with, you know, this flattening of the odds that everyone now knows about where the bottom three teams only have a 14% chance. But they flattened them and then divvied those odds up also amongst the teams while we're in the lottery too. And we're seeing now, you know, the six-team, like Minnesota, at number six in this current you know lottery structure this year, they've got a nine percent chance on the number one overall pick, which I think was you know two percent of percentage points higher. And the fact that there's also now a fourth lottery, a fourth drawing introduces a whole new you know exponentially you know uh, greater opportunity of chance and outcomes if you look at it mathematically, right? Like a factorial, right? You put in four different slots, that's a whole nother. Um, game of random chance involved. And so you look at that very first lottery, New Orleans wins at number one. But what they do before that, they were resting Anthony Davis down the stretch again, five on the league for not playing him because they, they A, didn't want him to get hurt, but also knowing he was going to leave, they wanted to get as high a pick as they could too. And Memphis at number two, I mean, they jump up and get John Morant. They were supposed to be, be a 50-win team that year. Then Jaron Jackson gets hurt, and they trade Marcus All, and they bench Mike Conley, and they plummet down the standings, and they jump up to number two. The Knicks fall to three. They were the worst team all year. And then number four, a lottery that drawing that, again, didn't happen in the history of the league until 2019. That's where the Lakers jump up, and they had sat LeBron for the last you know 20 games of the year with his you know suspect groin injury. And – that allows them to get the number one, the number four pick to trade for Anthony Davis. So there's obvious benefits to those other teams. And even still, you look at the top of the the top of the lottery, the bottom of the standings this year. These three teams with the worst rec- with tie with the, for the worst um for the, for with the highest odds at 14%, Houston, yep. Detroit, Orlando, they still have a 50% chance at a top four pick. And in a draft like this, where there's considered to be five guys or whatever it is. When, when it's not a draft like 16 or or 19, if you will, like we just talked about, where there's a top tier of guys, if there is a bigger crop or if there is a deep, you know, draft overall, I mean, any draft, I always say also, and a lot of guys say, when we talked about 2013, a lot of people say, oh, this this is a down draft. Historically, I mean, 2013 had Giannis Compo and Victor Oladipo and Rudy Gobert and CJ McCall and all these guys that didn't necessarily go one through five. I think every draft is deep and especially drafts that are considered to have a lot of top tier talent. I mean, there's so much benefit still to giving yourself a 50% chance at a top four pick at those guys. So, and even, I mean, Houston's got a hundred percent chance at a top five pick because they have the worst record in the league. Like I think that's a real reason why Tillman Fertitta, the Rockets owner comes out to ESPN on the record and says, I think we're in a great position because they know they're guaranteed at one of these top five guys. So I still think that you play in the lottery odds and we're seeing teams like OKC send Al Horford home for half the year and sit Shea Goldis Alexander and Orlando trade three borderline all-star players um, and Detroit just weave Blake Griffin. Like Blake Griffin is doing you know, pretty well still for Brooklyn. And yes, he is. Houston has John Wall just sit on the bench and watch Kevin Porter Jr. Just take his starting job. Like, 
as much as Sam Sixers were the most, you know, brazen, audacious rebuilding strategy in the book, like he didn't do anything as bald as those four teams did this year. So I definitely do think tanking is alive and well. First off, shout out to Kevin Porter Jr. I know you brought him up, but he he is, man, he is so fun to watch. And I really hope that everything continues to pan out for him because he is an exciting building block for Houston, literally looking like James Harden reincarnate uh, on some nights. It's absolutely incredible. But um, yeah, we talked about 2019 so much and, and all the lotteries that, that David Griffin has won over the years. It's still my goal, man. I, I got to like find a way to, to meet David Griffin in person and have some of that lottery luck rub off on me maybe it'll happen at a summer league or something when i'm out in vegas and i'm hitting the tables and i get some of that luck and and, and i walk away with a big win but man that, that that guy's career holy shit it's been incredible um but lastly to kind of tie everything together um i've alluded to how i feel about my answer to this with an earlier question but the the depth of last year's draft and this year's in terms of serviceable NBA talent that can come in and make an impact from day one at, at, at so many different points within the draft. Um, I feel like there are more avenues into the NBA than in years past because of the league's emphasis on offensive ability and, and shooting. In reality, when, when the chips are on the line, the league is either running a, a spread pick and roll set or they're clearing everyone out to the weak side to set up a shot for the team's first or second best spot-up shot maker, right? The simplification of offense at times on the biggest of stages, to me, gives prospects a solid blueprint to, to mold their skills around, which isn't as much of a problem because these guys are coming in now more than ever with legitimate jump shots from all over the floor. So I'll pose this last question to you, Jake. Should there still be an emphasis on tanking, even with the talent pool getting larger, as it seems, or do you think uh, do you still think teams should be placing as much of an emphasis on landing the first pick in the draft as in years past? I think I know your answer, but we'll kind of expound upon it for this last question here. Um, as long as <sighs> I, I, I just think the cat's out of the bag and Pandora's box is opened and we're seeing it across the league that all the teams that are left right now in these playoffs, what the, the one common theme amongst them is that they've all done a really you know concerted effort to compile multiple star level players together and that's just i think there's no going back that the nba is now if you want to contend for titles um it's it's about big game hunting and chasing these stars and the only three ways to get them are through the draft for agency or trade and like the heat proved in 2010 if you draft one of those guys like Dwayne wade and, and and do a good enough job around him he can draw players in for agency. And like the Suns proved with Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton, you can then trade for Chris Paul and not be concerned that he's going to leave Phoenix to go to New York or LA or whatever. And that's the other thing that player that we haven't really talked about is that you know, it, for small markets, like all these teams at the top of this year, those teams we mentioned, Detroit, Orlando, OKC, even Houston, like the Rockets are, the Houston is the fourth biggest media market in the country or whatever, something like that. Definitely top five. Um, yep. No, they had James Harden for eight years. They did everything they could to keep a team around him. And he still said, screw it, get me to Brooklyn. And now the Rockets, you know, their best option is to go and get those next replacements like a Kevin Porter Jr. in the margins and also, you know, in the draft. And I just think that because that strategy is so clear for those smaller market teams, I think it's not going away anytime soon. There you have it. That, that's Jake Fisher's answer. Tanking isn't going away anytime soon, whether you like it or not. It, it, it's definitely here, here to stay. That's how you get the highest level of talent um, operating on the margins that sometimes you are in these small markets. That was an excellent point to hit on to end, Jake. But, man, this was 
absolutely awesome to be able to have somebody like you on with, with such a breadth of knowledge regarding these NBA situations as far as tanking these team, these roster constructions, these front office constructions. It was awesome to get some of that insight. Um, but but please tell my audience, where can they find you on social media and how can they buy your book? Thank you guys again for the time and the platform to, to tell these stories. Again, I hope everyone listening buys it, being that you know, there's so much more in there, original details yep. that you're not going to find anywhere else that we, that we couldn't obviously get to today. Um, the book's on Amazon, bookshop.org. Um, if you want to support a local bookseller, Barnes & Noble, my publisher, Triumph Books. Um, you know, I also have a partnership going with La Terrain Watches, L-A-T-O-U-R-A-I-N-E, where if you buy a watch, you get a free copy of the book. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to get it. Um, and, it, you know, anyone supporting it, it'd be greatly appreciated. I put a lot of years and interviews and effort into this thing. I'm hoping to write another one. So. You know, the, the better this one does, it, it opens up the opportunity to do some more. So appreciate you guys, again, allowing me the opportunity to uh, to keep spreading the gospel of, of Built to Leave <laughs> forever. I'll, I'll be I'll be locked in waiting for for a second book, my man. And and yeah, you mentioned it at the top three over 300 different interviews. The book's 320 pages long. I sailed right through it and, and, and so should everybody else. So, Jake, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and my audience. Thank you so much to listening uh, for listening to this episode of the podcast. Again, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast: Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us at Draft Deeper. We're always talking basketball, the draft, the NBA playoffs. Come and communicate with us. We we love to debate. It, it, that's how we all get better evaluating the game that we love. Right. Um, thank you all again for listening. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend.